Well, the pastor of a Baptist church, a huge church in down, some downtown area of a large metropolitan city, he was con- he contacted the minister of a church from a different denomination, a non-Baptist denomination, and he had an unusual request. He said he had several people within his body who had recently joined his church, and but they preferred to be baptized by immersion rather than sprinkling. And that was normally the church's normal way of doing baptism. But the minister not only asked to see their baptistry, you know, there at the Baptist church, but he wanted the Baptist pastor himself to baptize the people that he was bringing. And for the Baptist preacher, this posed a bit of a dilemma. He says, what if those people that were coming to be baptized weren't born again? Since it was his conviction that only Christians should be baptized, he realized he couldn't with good conscience cooperate with the plan. But he wanted to respond in a way so as not to offend the other minister. So he wrote a very gracious letter in which he included this humorous statement, this funny little statement. He says, Dear Pastor, we don't take in laundry, but we'll be happy to loan you our tub. (laughs) I just thought this was an amusing example of the seriousness that some people ascribe to being born again, and they should. Uh, But I think we have to look at, in this chapter, what does it really mean to be born again? That's the question that Nicodemus is asking. And he's also kind of conflicted about, well, what is baptism? What kind of baptism is really required for this process to take place? So tonight we're going to see it specifically as Jesus himself presented it and God's provision on this critical step in our salvation. As I indicated last week, Kathy gave a really excellent study on the beginning of Christ's early ministry. And she started with his first miracle in Cana, right up to his driving out the merchants and the money changers in the temple in Jerusalem. Chapter 2 ended stating Jesus' unbelief in their belief in him, because he knew all men and he knew what was in man. You see, he wasn't fooled at all by the fickle, deceitful, wicked heart of men. He knew that they could turn on him in a heartbeat, and indeed they did, and put him on the cross. So next, we meet Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish religious leadership that would ultimately hound and persecute Jesus right up to delivering him to be executed. Our study tonight is to focus mainly on Jesus' conversion, I'm sorry, conversation with Nicodemus, but we're also going to look at two other significant transitions here in chapter 3. So first, we'll be looking at seeking what it means to be born again in verses 1 through 21. Then we'll look at the exit of a humble servant in verses 22 through 30. And then last, we'll look at the foundation for following the Son, That's given in verses 31 through 36. So we're going to start. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Looking at Nicodemus specifically, He's mentioned only five times in the entire New Testament, and all of those times is in the book of John that we're studying now. 
After this, this initial encounter, he's found twice more times in the book of John, once defending Christ before the Sanhedrin in John 7, 50 through 52, and again assisting Joseph of Arimathea in Jesus' burial in John 19, 39 through 42. His name means conqueror or victorious among his people. And I thought that that was a very strong name for him because it took so much courage for him to approach Jesus knowing how much opposition there was already within his peer group. He also had to admit that he lacked certain knowledge that he could only get from Jesus. And that was a big deal as a Pharisee because he was a teacher One commentator said Nicodemus was an example of the well-instructed and thoughtful Jew who looked for the consummation of national hope to follow in the line along which he had himself gone as being a continuation and not a new beginning. In other words, Nicodemus wasn't looking for the Messiah to start something new. He was expecting a savior to bring the old laws and rules and rituals into governance over Jew and Gentile alike. Essentially, he and others were looking for their Messiah to deliver them and to replace Roman rule with existing Jewish law and tradition. This was their idea of salvation. But notice how John describes Nicodemus overcoming his nervousness to seek the answers he needed that had been sparked in his heart by the Holy Spirit after hearing Jesus' teachings and seeing his signs and wonders. And I just thought that this was such a wonderful picture of how the Holy Spirit works in our own hearts to turn our curiosity into a confession of faith and trust in Jesus for our new birth into the kingdom of God and eternal life. So I had to ask my question, and I'll ask it of you. How far are you willing to go to turn your curiosity about the things of God into a confession of faith? Are you willing to go against your crowd and your peer group and your contemporaries and kind of put yourself out there? Are you willing to ask humble questions and to kind of admit your own ignorance in order to pursue the things of God and the truth of God? And are you willing to be earnest in your pursuit of the truth of the word of God? I think Nicodemus was very earnest and sincere in his questions. He just lacked that spiritual discernment and knowledge and understanding, but he was willing to go to Jesus for that. The word Pharisee means separated. They were part of the Sanhedrin, a 70-member council of Jewish religious leaders. They were the elite There were about 6,000 Pharisees in the nation of Israel, and they taught and enforced the law contained in the Torah, which are the first five books of the Old Testament. They they were proud, they were self-righteous, and they were the religious elite. They were, that separated means that they were apart from the general uh, public, from the people that they served. They believed in the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the dead, so that was good, and that the wicked would be eternally imprisoned in Hades, but the righteous would live again. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees practiced external righteousness. They were more concerned with the outward appearance than true inward sanctification. Jesus had harsh words for them in Matthew 23, 25 and Luke 11, 39, saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and wickedness. 
In addition, they had a tremendous, they had added a tremendous amount of extra-biblical traditions, such as the Mishnah, which contained 613 rules Jews must follow to keep the law. And one example of that, just in the keeping of the Sabbath, they had 24 chapters in the Mishnah just dedicated to how to keep. I mean, by the time you read through it, my gosh, you'd already violated it already, probably. I don't know how they did that. But that was what they did. They took the law and added their own commentary and in the process added extra burdens onto the people in the in the keeping of the law. And throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees continually critiqued and criticized Jesus and his disciples for violating these rules surrounding the law. They mercilessly persecuted Jesus and constantly tried to trip him up on some point of law or tradition. When reprimanding Jesus because his disciples broke tradition by not washing their hands before they ate, Jesus responded in Matthew 15, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see, in that time, Jews were locked into a religious culture that relied on works, the things that could be seen. This is how they determined their righteousness. But Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5.20. So again, I came to another question for myself and for you. How do you see yourself or others wearing their salvation? Because don't we kind of have a look, a style, a, a talk, a walk that we present to others I mean, consciously or unconsciously, hopefully more unconscious than conscious, but in some ways we sometimes present ourselves as being a little bit holier than we actually are. And we see ourselves or maybe others of having possessing a certain amount of righteousness that may or may not be as honest as as it should be. But Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There is no work we can do, no Christianity we can wear that will ensure or secure our salvation. We don't earn our salvation by works. And just as Jesus knows the hearts of all men, he knew that what Nicodemus was thinking. Instead of responding to this really gracious compliment, we know you are a man come from God. You know, that was very uh, magnificent of him to, to give that. But Jesus cuts right to the core of why Nicodemus was seeking him. Because Jesus always meets us right where we are because he knows our hearts. So Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus says most assuredly, I think Xavier shared this in his study recently, too. He's stating a firm, immovable truth. I think in Spanish, you would say yes for that, right? You know, this is truth. This is true. It's like putting the amen at the beginning of the sentence instead of at the end. So Jesus was saying in no uncertain terms that unless you're born again, you're blinded to the glory of the kingdom of God and that all glimpses of eternal life are hidden until one is born again. 
Born here means uh, begotten. That's what born translated means here. And again means from above, which is kind of unfortunate. It doesn't really, you know, fully uh, reflect that in the translation. So to be born again is to be begotten or conceived from above. The Apostle John particularly used this as a metaphor for the gracious act of God in imparting spiritual life to those who believe in his son and, as we believe, becoming the children of God. He used the term several times in this gospel and in his epistle, John 3, 3, 5, and 7, 1 John 2, 29, and 3, 9, 4, 7, 5, 1, 4, and 18. So you can see this was a recurring theme for John in all of his writings. But it still begs the question, what does it mean to be born again? To be born again happens from the inside out. Remember the movie, Disney movie, Inside Out? It's necessary for salvation because our sin separates us from God, according to Romans 3.23 and 6.23. But John 1.12 and 3.16 tell us that when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we become children of God and pass from death into eternal life. Then the Holy Spirit indwells, changes, and enables us to understand the word of God and to do what pleases God. Without spiritual rebirth, we remain dead in trespasses and sin, and the kingdom of God or any of his blessings are not ours to claim. In verse 4, Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This spiritual leader of Israel was sincerely seeking to understand but lacked spiritual discernment. He was wondering how an old man like him, honestly, could be reborn. He was taking this very personally. But he was limited in what he could see until he experienced the regeneration of the Spirit of God. Tradition had been a, had been a descendant of Abraham, made a Jew. Oh, tradition said being a descendant of Abraham made a Jew an heir to the kingdom of God. Human genealogy, not spiritual regeneration, was your ticket to heaven in the Jewish theology. Another commentator said it was taught widely among the Jews that at that time that since they descended from Abraham, they were automatically assured of heaven. In fact, some rabbis taught that Abraham stood watch at the gate of hell just to make sure that none of his descendants accidentally wandered in there. Can you imagine such an idea, such a doctrine that, you know, they're standing. If you're going to accidentally wander in there, it's probably not by accident, I would be thinking, but hey. So Nicodemus asked how rebirth could physically happen again. Obviously, re-entering his mother's womb was not an option, and if she was still alive, I can't imagine she would allow it anyway. But um, Jesus then answered him again, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So now Jesus gets down to how one is reborn. Jesus explains rebirth is a completely spiritual phenomenon. Two things are required, water and spirit. And I just really love the way that Warren Wiersbe puts it. He says, just as there are two parents for physical birth, so there are two parents for spiritual birth, the spirit of God 
and the word of God. The spirit of God takes the word of God, and when the sinner believes, imparts the life of God. So God's word and the Holy Spirit work hand in hand to affect our regeneration. Titus 3.5 clearly makes this point, saying, Salvation is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And John told us in chapter 1, verse 13, that those who believe in the name of Jesus were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So within the context of this passage, Water refers to God's word. James 1.18 says, Of his own will he, he, will he bring, forth, bring us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 1 Peter 1.23 says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The word of God washes and cleanses us, says Ephesians 5.26. Romans 6.4 and Colossians 2.12 tell us that water immersion represents the old man with all of our sin and corruption, being put to death and buried with Christ. And as we emerge out of the water, we are raised in newness of life with Christ, washed clean by his blood, a new creature now able to will and to do for his good pleasure. We should know from what we study in God's word that water baptism isn't necessarily for salvation. We know that most obviously from the thief on the cross with Jesus at that time. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. There was no sprinkling or no immersion for him at that point in time. He was in the kingdom of God based on his belief. His salvation was in his belief in Jesus Christ. But baptism does show our obedience to Christ and is part of our public confession of faith. So if you do it, it's, it's, it's admitting that you have uh, repented of your sins and that you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But I'm sure there will be a lot of people in heaven that didn't get dipped. So that's okay, too. Baptism does not save us or add anything to our salvation. A person is saved by trusting Christ. John 3.16 and Romans 10.17 make that abundantly clear. It says that when faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Paul, who was probably the greatest evangelist in the New Testament, was not called to baptize but to preach the word of God. He said in 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The power to save is in the word and the spirit of God alone. In verse 6, Jesus goes on to say physical birth and spiritual birth are two separate and distinct things which cannot be compared to each other. So Jesus is hitting this from every angle that he can think of to help Nicodemus understand because he knows this is still like blowing Nicodemus's mind. I'm just thinking all this born-again discussion that Jesus is having with him, he's just going because he can't grasp it. So again, Jesus repeats the need to be born again and that it's a spiritual process that isn't seen in an obvious way. Verse 7 and, and 8 say, Do not marvel that I, that I say to you, you must be born again. 
The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So he's making this spiritual connection as much as possible with Nicodemus. You know, and I just was thinking in that analogy, you know, have you ever tried to catch the wind in your hand? You know, it's not possible, right? I mean, you can fan the wind, whatever. You can't take hold of it. But you can see the evidence that a breeze is blowing. You can see it in the rustling of leaves or the flutter of a flag or the jingle of some wind chimes. You can see and hear the effects of the wind even though you can't touch it. And just like you can see the physical effects, rebirth comes from an unseen source, but it leaves evidence of a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Second Corinthians 5.17. Uh, I was looking, doing some research for this and, and just to see how many people consider themselves born again, having gone through this process. A March 2006 survey by the Barner Group uh, among adults classified as born-again Christians revealed that the highest affirmative response ever in their history had been tracking that measure. The research found that 45% of all adults met the criteria that Barna used to classify people as born-again, and this was up from 31% from 1983. Born-again Christians were defined as people who said they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their life today and who also indicated they believe that when they die, they will go to heaven because they had confessed their sins and had accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I thought, wow, 45%. And I was just trying to think, I don't know outside of church you know, how many people, every other, that tells me every other person I meet is supposed to be a Christian, right? 45%, that's pretty large. I don't think I see that. But what is some of the evidence that we can see of being born again? I have a couple of instances where the, the Lord does speak to this. In 1 John 3, 9 and 5, 18, it's someone who lives a life free of habitual sin. It says, whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, his seed being God's seed, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Another instance is obedience to God's word. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. John 14, 23. First John 2, 29 says, we are to live a redeemed life pleasing to God that if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Good works are a part of being born again, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then we should have a love for Christ and his people. 1 John 4, 7 and 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who, who loves is born of God and knows God. So there are a few things that we can see as evidence of someone being born again. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not faking it and shaking it. 
I think we're going to see some people in heaven that we didn't expect to see and some people in heaven that we did. So I just think we can have evidence of being born again as we purpose to live that life pleasing to God, to obey his word, to love him, to love his people. These are things that we can show as sincere evidence of our our being born again in Christ. Verses 9 through 13 say, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. Nicodemus was still struggling with this concept of rebirth. It was difficult for him to put together what Jesus was saying with the religious system he had practiced all of his life. It was just a disconnect for him. He was still thinking in terms of the physical universe. He didn't have a lot of head. He did have a lot of head knowledge because he was a, a student and teacher of the law, but he lacked spiritual discernment. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And that's where he was falling short. The natural man, the system of laws and traditions that he had lived with, that he had taught himself, that was interfering with his ability to understand the spiritual aspects of being born again. So Jesus challenged his authority as a teacher of Israel for not knowing these spiritual truths. And again, he establishes his own authority, declaring the absolute certainty of what he's telling Nicodemus based on his deity as the son of man. Then Jesus is, uh, admonishes Nicodemus' school of theology, and he compares it with what he, his followers, John the Baptist, and even the prophets spoke of and testified to be true. That's the we that he speaks of in the, that, that passage. How could Nicodemus believe unseen spiritual truth if he couldn't accept real tangible proof? He already had seen his signs and miracles. He mentioned that already up in verse 2. But he also had the Old Testament prophecies of rebirth that were also there for him to examine. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Ezekiel 11, 16 through 20, 35, 25 through 27, and chapter 37, 11 through 14. Again, again, and again, God talks about rebirth, restoration, regeneration of the nation of Israel. Those dry bones were going to be brought to life. Those graves were going to be opened up. They were going to be made alive in God, again, by him doing that work. That was all there for Nicodemus to know and to examine, but yet he still didn't make the connection. As the Son of Man came down from heaven to earth, Jesus could attest to both the spiritual and the physical. John established Christ's deity in verse uh, in chapter 1, verse 18, when he said, Only the Son of God has seen God, lives in intimate fellowship with God, and is able to explain the things of God. 
Also later in John 5, verses 36 and 37, Jesus says, But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. So Jesus speaks to the spiritual aspects that testify of him coming from God, being of God, and having been with God. Jesus knows exactly what he's saying and has the divine authority to reveal these spiritual truths to Nicodemus because he is God. In verses 14 through 21, Jesus seals his authority as the Son of God with the power and ability not just to deliver a nation, but to save all mankind. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is probably the most famous and familiar passages in all of the Bible. Jesus kicks this whole passage off by reminding Nicodemus of, again, an event he should have been familiar with. The account in Numbers 21, when the people complained against God and Moses in the wilderness. So God sent fiery serpents into the camp, but he provided salvation for those who were bitten, that if they looked at a bronze serpent that Moses had erected on a pole, they would live. This is how sinful man must still today come to the cross and believe in Jesus to be saved. Verse 16, which is basically the capsulization of the entire gospel, you know, for God so loved the world. But it also gives us at least 11 promises of who and what initiated our new birth by what means our response and our ultimate reward. And some of you may have heard this before, but I think it's worth reading again. God, the greatest giver, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company, that he gave the greatest act, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, that whoever believes the greatest simplicity in him, the greatest person, should not perish the greatest promise, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. This is a marvelous revelation of what God does in a redeemed and regenerated life. Then he goes on to expand his mission more fully, and he includes man's choice, his condition, and the consequences in verses 17 through 21. He says, For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved that he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen and that they have been done in God. Jesus makes it clear the Son of God wasn't sent to condemn the world. Rather, it was to be a savior to the world. Our personal choice 
is whether or not to believe that he came to save us. If we choose to believe, we escape condemnation and come to the truth and light of the Son of God. John 1, 4, 5, 7, and 9 say, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He was the true light, which gives light to every man. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's our choice. Our condition is our guilt before God due to our sin and unrepentance. We're under condemnation due to unbelief in his son. Our nature loves the darkness and we love to practice evil and hating for our sin to be revealed by the light. Our consequences are based on our choices and in who we believe. If we choose to believe in Jesus Christ as our savior, our guilty verdict is reversed and we receive eternal life to shamelessly live in the glory of God. So are we making the right choices, ladies, in our lives? Are we honest about our condition, being sinful, ungodly? And are we prepared for the consequences of what we choose? To choose Christ and life or to choose darkness and condemnation? As we near the close of this chapter, we come to the exit of a humble servant in verses 22 through 30. And I'm just, this was always very interesting to me as I was studying this, the differences between, because now we're moving out of the uh, Nicodemus passages into the John the Baptist passages. We move from the religious elite who probably lived a very luxurious life as most religious elites in that day did to this man, this voice crying out in the wilderness who was eating locusts and, you know, burlap, you know, wearing burlap or whatever rough cloth he wore as his garment. The elite did not know spiritual truth. The humble did. And I think that's how we also come to our spiritual understanding and our, our, our knowledge in the truth and faith in Jesus Christ. 22 and 23 says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John was also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. So after Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, he and his disciples went to Judea, and they baptized followers while John was in Samaria, which was about 40 to 50 miles north of Judea, south of Galilee, in the Jordan River Valley. This was about six miles south of Bethshane. And those of you who have been to Israel or have gone recently, Bethshane was, you know, one of those locations that we visited. And as you might recall, they had the baths there. This was all because water supplies were plentiful and easy. Water springs were in abundance. Jesus also tells us later in John 4, 2, that Jesus himself did not baptize, but that his disciples did. So I don't think it's recorded anywhere in the Bible where Jesus actually did a a, a physical baptism, but it was always his disciples who did the baptism. And I think he avoided that so that it wouldn't ascribe more importance to baptism than what it should be. And again, baptism is into repentance and in obedience. 
At this point, verse 24 says, John had not yet been thrown into prison. Luke 3, 18 through 29 tells us that John's imprisonment would come from Herod because John had confronted him for committing adultery with Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And as you know, he was later beheaded and his head was presented on a a silver platter at the request of Herodias' daughter, Salome. But before all that happens, all that drama, there arose a dispute among some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Well, the purification that they were referring to was the ceremonial washing that was required before and after meals. And again, this was part of Jewish tradition and part of some of the uh, the Mishnah regulations. The Jews were still focused, the Jews that were with John the Baptist, on, on the outward, on the works, on what it looked like. They were in a cultural and legal bondage to works for their righteousness still. This dispute was also based on jealousy and pride. They didn't want, you know, Jesus' disciples eclipsing them in the work that they were doing with the people. But this is nothing that either John nor Jesus showed toward each other. One was not jealous of the other. They all understood what their roles were. So John, in his humility, said in verse 27, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. John makes it clear to his followers that anything, whether it's power, authority, or provision, comes from God. His ministry was given to him by God, and he is now ready to defer to God for whatever he has for him. It's his way of his own way of saying it is finished in terms of his ministry. And then I thought again, are we as gracious and humble when it's time for us to step aside and to allow a greater ministry, a greater servant to come forward and to serve and to do? We know that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble and that exaltation comes neither from the east nor west nor from the south, but God is the judge and he puts down one and exalts the other. John was very willing to lay aside his ministry to allow Christ to now be predominant and preeminent. In the, in the forwarding, going forward of the gospel. He, he was filled with joy and rejoicing in that. He wasn't, you know, grumbling, oh no, I guess I better step down or I better step aside. He didn't do that. He did it with joy. He did it with exaltation. He was happy to do it. So here, John, like Jesus, was declaring his mission for his ministry and that essentially it's over. He was no longer to be, he was not, never the focus, was not to be the focus. He was only just a messenger. He was the herald of the bridegroom who was coming, rejoicing for and with him as he takes center stage. There was also satisfaction and relief that the bridegroom had arrived. 
Everything John had lived for was now fulfilled, and, and it brought him great, great joy to see it. So finally, in verses 31 through 36, John provides the reason he is stepping aside, and he gives his followers the foundation for following the Son. He says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. John's final recorded exhortation to his followers is to follow Jesus. He gives the Lord his allegiance, proclaiming his preeminence over everything on earth. He declares Jesus as superior and his testimony as indisputably from God, who loves his son and who has exalted and given him authority over all things. John lays it out simply and perfectly for his disciples to now move on and follow Jesus. So you can see the contrast between Nicodemus and the elite and the lack of spiritual understanding and John the Baptist, the humble, the voice crying out in the wilderness and his ability to know and to discern the things of God and to humbly set himself aside for the purposes of God. We learn tonight that Nicodemus, in seeking what it means to be born again, received heart surgery as Jesus looked into and provided the answers to those things he desired to know but could not understand. We saw the exit of a humble servant as an example of how to step aside and joyfully allow Jesus to take center stage in our lives, in our ministry, to give him all the glory and honor he deserved. And we discovered the foundation for following the Son, acknowledging Christ's superiority, preeminence, and authority from God, and our call to believe in him for everlasting life. Ladies, we need to make right choices. We need to be honest about our condition. And we need to consider the consequences as we make those choices. I would ask that if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, tonight is the night to make that choice. Tonight is the night to honestly examine your condition. And tonight is the night to look at what the consequences are. One of them is to be born again.